look a lot better Sunday mornings than Sunday nights. <laughs> Peeked in on them a few times. Anyway, the story is told of two golfers who are out on the course. It's a beautiful day. The first guy is not too bad. He's one of those, you know, low and slow and straight and steady guys. Uh, you know, he holds his own. The other guy, well, I'll put it frankly, he's just a disaster. I mean, he's one of those guys, he's a grip it and rip it fellow, but man, wherever the ball goes, that's where it goes. And if he hits it in the trees, you know, sure enough, you see branches and trees and, and bark flying all over the place. If he can get it out of the trees and he hits it into the, into the rough, you know, that's not going to stop him. There's big hunks of grass that are flying, and I mean, he's taking huge divots out of the course, and it's just a disaster. One particular afternoon, he ends up hitting it on this gigantic anthill. I mean, there's literally millions of ants in this anthill, and he just keeps taking a whack at the ball. And man, there's millions of ants. They're flying everywhere. They're dying left and right. And finally, after, you know, several swings and millions of, uh, of uh, ants dying, there's two ants that are left. And the one ant looks at the other ant and says, man, what do you think we should do? And the other ant looks and says, you know what? I think it's pretty obvious. If we don't get on the ball, we're going to die. <laughs> You know, and I thought about that story and was reminded uh, as we've been going through our series, you know, Living in Light of Eternity, that, uh, you know, God continually warns all people that we had best to get on the ball, you know, to take the appropriate action while we still can, or we will die, not only physically, but more importantly, that we will die spiritually or eternally, what the Bible calls the second death. This life gives us a window of opportunity to make sure that we don't end up in a place that was never designed for man, a place that was designed for the devil and his demons, a place the Bible refers to as hell or ultimately the lake of fire. And God patiently continues to warn people that that fate is inevitable unless there's some divine intervention. And the Bible tells us in order to avoid the second death, that we're to repent of our sins, to recognize that we fall short of God's glory, that none of us are perfect, you know, no, not one, all of us like sheep have have gone astray, none are righteous. And that we're to trust in Jesus' death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And the Bible says that both of those events were foretold by scripture, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he rose again according to the scriptures. It was by the predetermined plan of God that God would reconcile rebellious man to himself if we do things the way that God says they need to be done. And so as we consider that and look at that, there will be a judgment, a judgment before Christ for those who will suffer the second death. And that judgment is called the great white throne judgment. It'll take place at the end of the millennium or the battle of Armageddon. Uh, where all of one's life's deeds will affirm what God already says about all humanity, and that is that we're already condemned. You know, the Bible says in John chapter 3, you know, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we usually stop there, but the Bible goes on and says, you know, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn this world, for this world has been condemned already. When was this world condemned? We saw it in the first message in this series. 
Genesis 3.6, the reality of our mortality. When Adam chose to rebel against God, at that moment in time, sin entered into the world, and with sin came death, and that's the reason that all of us die physically. And so as we consider this, we need to recognize and understand that the good news is, is that, you know, it is not God's desire for any to perish, for any of us to go to hell. You know, he patiently, as I said, and lovingly continues to reach out to humanity through his word as the gospel is proclaimed by his people, those who have been born again, transformed by the grace and the, and the will of God, and that we have a responsibility that we have been given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. You know, we talk about people all the time. They're always wondering, you know, what's my purpose in life? What's my purpose in life? I need to find a purpose in life. And, and the reason that they usually say that is because they've done everything that the world has to offer and there's still something empty. And the great purpose in the life of every person who has come to faith in Christ and has been adopted into the family of God, the great purpose to all of our lives is to bring glory to God. And the way that we bring glory to God is that we witness or share with others how God has called us from darkness to light. And so our greatest purpose is to share with others this ministry of reconciliation that has been handed to us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And as an ambassador, we know that our citizenship is not here of this earth, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are here on assignment from God for the specific purpose of sharing with as many people as will listen God's love for them and God's plan of salvation to keep them from going to hell. We should never, as God's people, feel frustrated and feel like, you know, I don't have a purpose to my life. That's ridiculous. We've got the greatest purpose, and the greatest purpose is to share God's love with those who do not know God. The greatest purpose is to share God's roadmap that keeps people from going to hell and points them to heaven. The greatest purpose is to be able to tell people how they can have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I just share with you why I believe that some of us are so miserable? As God's people, if we're miserable in this lifetime, it's because we're not doing what God has asked us to do. It's as simple as it gets. If we don't do what God asks us to do, we will be miserable people. Because there's no other way to put this, but if you don't do what God has commanded you to do, then you're in rebellion against God. And you will never have peace or joy or contentment if you're in rebellion against God. It just doesn't work. If you've got your own selfish ambitions, then the Bible says that, you know what, that's really the source of quarrel among you. You know, we need to lay aside our own ambition and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? God, where is it that you want me to serve? God, what is it that you have given me as a gift in order to serve you and minister to your people? And we always got to be constantly asking that question. You know, as I think about and study God's word concerning this judgment, there's another judgment that stands out. And that judgment is the judgment that takes place for all believers before what we would call the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. 
And when I am made aware of that as I study through Scripture, that this is a judgment that is inevitable for all of God's people, it saddens me because I begin to realize that not many of us have been exposed to the judgment seat of Christ. And on top of that, many of us are confused by judgment. We think that, well, wait a minute. Jesus Christ died on the cross, and and my sins, past, present, and future, were taken away, lifted up, 1 John, taken away forever, and that I will never give an account for those sins. And then I read about, well, but I'm still going to be judged before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what exactly is he going to judge me for? And on top of all of it, it saddens me because I believe this. If you and I leave here today with a clear, crisp, and maybe a new understanding that you and I are going to have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account of this life after we came to faith in Christ. If it doesn't change how you live your life, then I didn't teach you right. Because there is no way in the world that you can understand your individual accountability for God and standing before him one day and giving an answer for how you lived this life since coming to faith. And if it doesn't wake you up and frighten you in many ways to get your act together, then I haven't presented it right. Because this is probably the single greatest doctrine other than the doctrine of hell that should motivate all God's people to reevaluate what is my life all about? What am I doing? And you know what? And if that day is coming, what is that day going to be like for me? What is that day going to be like for me? What will that day hold for you? The good news is, is that we can begin preparing for it today and eliminate any mystery or unwanted surprises. What does the Bible tell us about the upcoming day of judgment? What can we expect? And I ask that you listen very carefully because your future status in God's kingdom in the millennium and beyond will be determined by what you believe concerning the following nine facts and how you act accordingly once you understand them. So we'll just take a look at them, you know, one at a time. But the first thing that I want to share with you is that, you know, you will be judged and make this personal. You know, it's, it's always easier to say, well, Chuck, you'll be judged. But it's like, well, yeah, but you'll be judged. I'll be judged. And I want to make this personal. I will be judged by God following my life here on this earth, period. I will be judged, and so will you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, where Jesus clearly explains this truth regarding a future judgment. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him to this luncheon that he was at, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, 
and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You know, there are several truths that jump out in this little section as I consider Jesus' words. Again, we see there's continuity of life uh, that's taught plainly in this passage. When one dies physically, our life does not end. It continues. While our bodies will decay in a, in a grave or be cremated or whatever we'll do with the remains of those earthly tents that are collapsing and falling apart is subject to each individual person individually. But the reality of it is, as God's people, we leave our bodies behind. And when we're absent from our body, we're present with the Lord, our life continues. There's continuity that's there and it's clearly taught in this passage. And what he's saying is, is that, you know, those who help those who cannot repay in this life, notice, will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And there we see again the truth of the resurrection, which we went into great detail in our last two messages. But at the bottom line, he's saying that, hey, you know what? For those who help others who are not in a position to repay such help, God promises that he will repay us or reward us one day for that act of unselfishness. That he will repay us. It's a given. It's a guarantee. If you'll see that. He says that the larger, the larger point of this teaching is to encourage God's people to minister to folks in Jesus' name who don't have the material resources to pay us back or even say, I owe you one. You know, if you'll notice this, notice the word but in verse 13, but. He's saying but in contrast to how this world operates. How does our world operate? You invite us to dinner, we owe you a dinner. You know, you took us out last time, we'll take you out this time. You know, you did this for us, now we'll do this for you. And it's always a world of reciprocation where we, we do it as we benefit one another. Now what he's saying is, is that in contrast to how this world operates, why don't you go and invite people who can never repay what you'll do for them? Take them out to dinner. Use your material resources to benefit or bless them in some way that they have no other, they have no other choice but to praise God for your generosity towards them because there's nothing they could ever do to repay it. And he's saying that we need to become more strategic we need to become more aware of the fact that, you listen, God has given us physical and material resources, not just for the purpose of us enjoying them and stocking up as many of them as we can, but to use those resources in such a way that Jesus will be honored and given glory and given preference because we're using them, how? In a, in a manner to win others to Christ. Why did you do this for us? Because we wanted to bless you as God blesses us. Well, but we didn't deserve it. But that's what grace is all about. We didn't deserve it either. Anything that we have and who we are comes from God. What do you have? The question that Paul asked the Corinthians, because they were bragging about all the things that they had, he broke it down into a very simple analysis, and he said this, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Seriously, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? If you're intelligent, hasn't your intelligence been given to you by God? 
If you're a physically gifted athlete, and I've used this in many chapels, I say, look, the fact that you have physical gifts and you can do what you can do, isn't it because God has given you that physical ability? If you have a spiritual gift or gifts of any type that you use to the glory of God, how can you boast about your spiritual gift or gifts when it comes from God? And so, you know what? Defer it to him and praise him and give him the glory. But what this passage is saying is, listen, you know what? Let's become more strategic and use what God has given us to reach people for the kingdom of God and not do business as usual like the rest of the world where, hey, you know what? You owe us. I think so. I mean, we have friends that we do, it's all, it's all the time. No, you bought last time. No, you bought last time. Oh, no, you bought last time. Oh, yeah, you bought last time, but it wasn't as much as this one is. Whoa. So, okay, you can buy this time. Ooh. You know, it's kind of like, it just gets crazy after a while. It's like, come on. You know, we're throwing money back and forth. No, we bought, you bought, you bought. It's like, oh, uh, this is nuts. And so what he's saying is, is that, you know, we need to recognize and understand that not every one of our good works towards others will be rewarded in this lifetime. We need to get that through our heads because there are people out there who will teach that, you know what, if you give somebody a buck in the name of Jesus, then he's going to give you $100 back sometime soon in this lifetime. And you know what? The Bible doesn't teach that because many of God's people read Hebrews 11 They never saw their reward this side of eternity. They looked for the day where they would see their reward. They looked for their city whose foundation was made from God. They looked for the future promises of God, but they didn't get hung up on it because what will happen is this. If you believe in the teaching that says basically as soon as we do something good for God, then God needs to immediately respond to that. If he doesn't respond quick enough, then we think that, you know what, then that doesn't work. The principle doesn't work. And so we go, we give up. But if we understand that, hey, you know what, sometimes he'll bless us this side of eternity, sometimes he won't. Many times we're going to look forward to what he has, and it's going to be a surprise to all of us, and we just praise him, but we know that he's not unjust as to forget the works that we do in his name and ministering to the saints. So say, okay, great. So we look forward to that. Uh, Number two, you will be judged at the second coming. It answers the question, when? You will be judged at the second coming of Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. You know, one of the things that I like, and it's kind of demented, it shows you how much time I spend in front of a television set sometimes. But while you're looking up uh, the Matthew verse, you know, when I read that Jesus says, you will be repaid, it's like, it's a guarantee. And I think if that George Zimmer guy can guarantee suits and stuff, it's like, it's like if we can't believe God when he says, you know, hey, I guarantee it. You know, I guarantee it. So, you know, just keep on serving me. Keep on meeting the needs of other people. And you know what? And at the resurrection of the righteous, I'll go ahead and reward you. I guarantee it. But I don't picture him being that short guy with the, with the beard and everything and, and the suit. I don't know. This guy got a different picture of God. That's all. Okay, Matthew, where are we at? Matthew chapter 16, um, let's look at verse 27. Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his angels and his Father, 
and will then recompense or reward every man according to his deed. Flip to Revelation chapter 22, and we see a similar promise, a similar guarantee, where it says in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 13, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So you, can, you can bank on this. This is going to happen. We will be judged at the second coming of Christ. We've already learned that according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and also 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus will return for his church prior to this period of time called the Great Tribulation. At that time, we receive our resurrected bodies or as we talked about, our ultimate makeovers. And uh, also, during this period of time, prior to us ruling and reigning with Christ during the millennium or thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, this judgment of ours has to take place. And the reason I say it has to take place is because if we are going to be assigned responsibilities and we will rule and reign with Christ during this thousand-year period of time, well, when will the determination be made as to what our responsibilities will be? We see it in several of the parables, the parable of the cities, uh, the talents, the pounds, where you know, we learn that, okay, based on our faithfulness here on earth, Jesus is going to determine how you and I are going to reign with him. Well, in order to have that assignment ready to be handed out, so to speak, during that seven years, during the tribulation, I believe that that's when this judgment, this Bema Seed judgment will take place for all of God's people. It is during that period of time where we will be judged. We'll see more of that. We will be given our responsibilities or assignments based on this judgment. And then when the millennium comes rolling in, we'll, we'll know exactly what it is that we're to be doing and where and when and how we're to serve the Lord. So that's kind of exciting to see that and to understand it. For now, we know that those in the intermediate heaven are enjoying God's presence and his fellowship, uh, also the fellowship with other believers, but technically speaking, as we read the word of God, they're still waiting for their reward or rewards, which will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. So they have that to look forward to. Um, our third fact addresses the question, who? You know, who will be the one who's doing the judging? And uh, who will decide what rewards or responsibilities we will receive? And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It's fun. I like listening to all those pages turn, and, and uh, you know, I turn mine, and they fall out and stuff. It's, it's great. I love it. You got to love that. Ah, this is good stuff. You know, some of you are like going, I'm getting so confused. Um, but that's all right. Just make notes, and you can go back later. Because you know what? There's, there's, uh, there's nothing illegal about using your Bible at home. I, not that I know of. No laws have been passed recently that I've heard of. So, you know, make some notes and spend some time with God. And it's really, it's really fun. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we read these words. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed, rewarded, for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. This is mind-boggling to me. Yet the Bible clearly teaches that every believer will have his or her personal audience before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
you know, as that song states, I can only imagine, you know, how I might respond to this judgment. Face to face with the holy, perfect, righteous God of the universe. Face to face with my Savior as I look upon his scars and the price that he paid to free me from sin and judgment. Face to face. We get all excited because, you know, maybe your review at your company is with the owner instead of your manager. You finally got a chance to be able to talk to somebody who can actually do something or make a difference. I have a good friend of mine who plays for the Angels and they were struggling with his contract negotiation. And we were talking about it and we meet regularly together for a Bible study and prayer. And he said, you know, what do you think I should do? I said, well, you know, if I were you and in, in the position that you're in and the kind of relationship that you have with the owner, I man, I just go right to his office and knock on the door and say, do you got a minute? I'd like to talk to you. Now, these negotiations have been going on for months. Knocks on the door, invited in. Owner looks at him and says, what do we need to do? He goes, well, here's what we need to do. He goes, it's done. Shook his hand, it was done. I thought, man, isn't that great to have that kind of access to the person who can make the decision? Now think about it on this scale because this isn't even in the same universe, not even in the same ballpark. I mean, it's even even maybe a bad contrast or comparison. But we're talking about you face-to-face with Jesus. Me face-to-face with Jesus. Let that soak in for a minute. Imagine staring into his face. Just the two of you. One-on-one. Nobody else around. Your life flashes before you. And you see now what he sees. There's no hiding because all things are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. There's no opportunity to put a better spin on what you did or start making excuses for what you didn't do. Praise God, there'll be no attorney representing you. And I only say that because there'll be no forthcoming bill or invoice. You know, and you'll know it by looking in his eyes whether this is going to go good or bad. Like it or not, that is precisely where you and I shall stand someday. And living in light of this truth should cause us to be all that we can be on earth so that we can be all that we can be in heaven. When was the last time that you made any decision whatsoever with the knowledge that you will stand before Jesus one day and give an account for that action? When was the last time that it was, you know, even a a point of, you know, being in your conscience or conscious to the the awareness that, you know what, I'm going to have to give an account for this. As I think about my personal appearance before the Lord Jesus Christ, in some ways I'm comforted knowing that he will judge me fairly 
because I know that he both loves me and is merciful. As David said, Lord, I'm glad that you're judging me and not my enemies. Because whatever I deserve, I know that that's what I'll get from you. Good or bad. Disciplined or rewards. I also know that he knows the truth. And he's not swayed by one-sided opinions or selfish interests. Yet if you'll notice verse 11, many times we stop at verse 10. But I want you to look at that with me in context because the word therefore uh, is critical. It ties in verse 10 with verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we're manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. He said, you know, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that I have to give an account for my life, knowing that I'm going to stand before the Lord and answer for how I spent the time that God has given me, the time that he says we're to redeem wisely. And I start to realize that it's like, man, I've spent, he'd be like, Chuck, You know, you're 48, and if I die soon, he'd be like, you spent half your life either watching sports on TV or participating. Was that the best use of 24 years of your life? Or whatever it is, I don't know, it's probably worse. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to give myself, cut myself a break. (laughs) Even though I'm not going to be able to spin it, it'd be like, here it is. And you start to really question yourself, you know... How, how many hours I spend at the movies or watching television or in sports or in hobbies or shopping. <laughs> Who wrote that there? I didn't put that there. <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever those things are that, that take us away from the things that God is calling us to do. How many hours do we spend in the Word of God? How many hours do we spend ministering and encouraging and building up new believers? How many hours have you actually spent over the course of your lifetime telling anybody about Jesus? See, that's why I believe if we really understand this doctrine, we should leave here changed people. And everything that we do should be evaluated in light of what's important eternally. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. My responsibility today is to persuade you to wake up and take this serious. To persuade you that you will stand as God's children before the judgment seat of Christ. And you will answer for how you live this life. See, God is not mocked. And while he will certainly be fair in his judgment, he will be thorough. When Paul says the word appear in in verse 10, the word appear uses a Greek word which means to be made manifest or listen to this, or to be turned inside out. When I think about that, Jesus is going to turn my life inside out. And there's nothing hidden. Think about this carefully. Every thought and intention of your heart will be judged by God. Every word will be judged 
things spoken of in private, behind closed doors, slander and gossip, hateful words, bitter words, hypocritical words, will be judged. Jesus said, and I say to you that every careless word that men speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Matthew 12, verse 36. That which is spoken of in the bedroom will be shouted from the housetop, for there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. Personally, I believe that there will be tears at this judgment. I believe that there will be sorrow. I believe that when we realize our lost opportunities, that our hearts will be broken. And I know some of you are going, but in heaven there's no tears and there's no sadness and there's no sorrow. And I say to you, that is true, and we'll get to that point, but that is not until the permanent heaven after God wipes away every tear and every sadness and every sorrow and every suffering. But I believe that when we're standing before Jesus Christ one day, we're going to be heartbroken and the rewards we could have had that we just didn't believe were possible because one, either we bought into the lie or two, frankly, let's just face it, we're selfish. And we want what we want when we want it and we want it here and now. And rewards deferred for eternity downstream, nah. Can I have some of it now and some of it later? And if it's choice, I'd rather just have all of it now. But God says, hey, you know what? That's not the way it works. The point is this. Never forget. Everything that we do and say is consistently before the eyes and the ears of him to whom we have to give an account. With that in mind, there's some very practical things. And that is, you know, I was you know, thinking about it as I went through it. You know, do, do we need to uh, make some things right with others? Are there th- things that are hanging out there that, you know what, we need to get resolved? We need to get them resolved. And frankly, I wouldn't mind standing before the Lord one day and say, yeah, I had some difficulties with people, but the best of my ability, I try to reconcile with them. I try to resolve it. I can't control their result, how they responded. I can't control whether they forgave me or didn't forgive me. But you know what? But I had a responsibility to make it right. And so we can stand with a clear conscience before God. I did all that you required of me to do. We need to live lives of no regrets. Because we don't know if today is our appointed time. And then comes judgment. We just don't know that. Don't put it off. Resolve it today. If God's moving in your heart, that there are outstanding issues in your life between you and someone else, then you know what? Make every effort as quickly as you can to resolve it in a Christ-like way so that God gets all the glory. Number four, you'll be judged along uh, with all other believers. And if you look at Romans chapter 14, starting with verse 10, we'll notice that, you know, we're going to be judged with everybody else. But not as a group event, not as a group experience, but there's no partiality with God. And you know what? And no one's going to get away with uh, not being judged. If you'll notice, he says that, um, you know, in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 14, uh, verse 10, the uh, second half of that particular passage talks about the fact that, you know what, we're all going to have to give a judgment or an answer. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue will confess or give me praise to God. 
So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Notice that. No one's going to escape it. So walk out of here today absolutely 100% convinced that if you have come to a point where you have turned from sin, you've trusted in Christ, you've believed on him, on him as far as his death and his resurrection on your behalf, you're a child of God, born again by the will of God, not by your own efforts. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. If you are born again by the biblical definition, you will stand before Jesus one day and give an account of your life after coming to faith in Christ. Get that down, write it down, don't forget it, and hopefully it'll start to change the way you live every day. Number five, you'll be judged on the basis of your works alone. Take a look at a couple of verses so we don't have confusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, it's going to be based on what we actually do. Some of us are masters of uh, sincere intentions. But he says, each man's work will become evident for the day, specific definite article, the, has to do with the day of judgment, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Listen to me carefully because what I'm about to say, the confusion in this area is the difference between going to heaven or going to hell. So it's, it's, it's vitally urgent that you listen carefully. The Bible clearly teaches that it is our belief which determines our destination. What must I do to be saved? Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What do I gotta do? You gotta repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. His death his resurrection on your behalf, and you shall be saved. What is the work that pleases God? This is the work that pleases God, that you believe upon him whom God has sent, Jesus. Okay? Our behavior subsequent to this belief determines our rewards. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 clearly teach this. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that no one will boast. And we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Listen, to do the works that God has created for us to do before the foundation of the world. So God saves us to do the work that he has called us to do before we were ever saved, before the foundation of the world. So he's saying, Chuck, when I called you from darkness to light and you became a child of God by believing in Jesus, I have given you a gift or gifts, spiritual gift or gifts, to use in my glory for my purposes, for my kingdom, to build up the body of Christ. I have, I have these works for you to do now do them. And if you do them, I will reward you according to your faithfulness. So the question that you have to ask yourself is this. As James writes, faith without works is dead. And the question that you have to ask yourself now is this. Am I, as a child of God, fulfilling this requirement of God by doing the works that God has prepared for me to do before the foundation of the world, are you busy doing the thing 
or the things that God has called you to do? Or are you still looking for purpose and meaning in life? We need to know what our gift is. We need to know what our gifts are. We need to exercise those gifts so so that we can do that which God has called for us to do. Are you busy? Now, the bottom line is, I hear people all the time talking about all the things that they want to do someday. Don't take that with you to the judgment seat of Christ. I'm just, take it for what it's worth. But I'm trying to give you some good counsel here. I wouldn't utter that phrase. But you should have seen all the things I was thinking of doing. I had a lot of good ideas. I didn't know that I'd be called home this quick. I didn't know. I would have got busy. This is real. This is happening. This is all true. Your word is true. Yes, it is. And guess what? Now you're experiencing everything God said you're going to experience. And he wrote it and put it all in writing so that we would know ahead of time. So that none of us will be without excuse. You can't leave here today knowing a couple of things. Number one, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, you're on your way to hell. Number two, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you know what? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But one day you're going to give an account of your life in Christ. And basically you will be judged on what you did. What did you do for the kingdom of God? And no, no one can say, I don't know. Well, even if I didn't tell you, you have a responsibility to know it. You know why? Because God says, read my word. So, you, you know, you're on the hook. I'm on the hook. And there's no way to get around it. Number six, you'll be judged for the works that you do following your conversion. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. God could care less about anything that happened in your life prior to coming to faith in Christ. All things pass away, all things become new. Whatever good things you did as an unbeliever, you know what God has to say about those things? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. It's just, you know, you build on sand. You know, there's nothing good in any of that because you didn't do a glorifying God. Christ wasn't within you and they weren't the things that God wanted you to do. And so, you know, just forget about it. Our foundation is Christ. Anything we did prior to coming to faith in Christ means absolutely nothing to God. Read Matthew chapter 7 sometime, verses 13 through 29 on your own and you'll see that God makes it very clear. But didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? Hey, you know what? Never knew you. So whatever it is you thought you were doing, useless, waste of time. Number seven, you'll be judged for the works you did before you died. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, well, we will appear before the beam of seat, judgment seat of Christ, and give an answer for what we did while we were in the flesh, meaning while we were still alive. Now, this is good to point out, and I'll tell you why. Sin nature is always looking for an angle. And here's the way some people think. Well... When I die, I don't really need stuff. When we die, we don't really need stuff. So we'll use all our stuff until we die. And then God, you can have what's ever there. Take it, because I don't need it. What do I need golf clubs for after I'm dead? No, you know... Take whatever you want because I don't need it. And that's called sacrificial giving. I mean, you see, the thing is, is God's looking for sacrificial givers. 
generous givers. He's testing us by giving us material resources to see if we will use those resources as a tool or a testimony of our love for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, read it sometime. Great passages on, you know what? God uses material things to test our love. Do we love God or do we love stuff? And so he has to make it very clear in his word that he judges us for what we did while we were still alive. So that if I decide to sell my golf clubs because we need to raise money to somehow meet a ministry need, that sacrificial gift will be honored by God and looked at by God and God will take that in consideration the day that he judges me versus after I'm dead, well, God, you can have whatever you want. Well, but people, and they call it Christian estate planning. It sounds pretty godly. Now, that's, of course, if you can convince your children and your grandchildren to go along with the program. Because they have something to say about it too. And their attitude would be the same. Well, you know what? After we're done with it, then God, you can have it. And that's not the way God judges. He judges us for the works that we did before we die. So are you living sacrificially now or not? Number nine, you will be rewarded on the basis of your judgment. According to what he has done, Matthew 16, 27. Not what you thought about doing, not what you told others that you would do, or what you wanted to do. God will judge us by what we actually do. Isn't that great? Because for everybody who's doing, we all say, praise God. For those who are doing nothing, then we say, praise God that he's going to judge them according to what they're doing. And if they're doing nothing, they'll get nothing according to their labor. The word reward in Greek is paycheck in 1 Corinthians 3, 8, 9. And it's basically God saying, hey, you know what? You're earning whatever it is that I decide to give you by your labors in this lifetime. You earn your rewards. And God is not unjust to forget to reward those who serve him and meet the needs of his people. And lastly, we're rewarded individually. And I like this. And the reason for it is this. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter what anybody else has been given by God as a spiritual gift. Every one of us have an opportunity to be rewarded generously on the day of our judgment. And the way that that works is, all we have to do is be faithful to utilize the opportunities that God has given us to reach others and to expand his kingdom. It's all about opportunity. According to those works that he has prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world. You know, it's all about him and you. Don't worry about anybody else. Jesus made that clear when he rebuked Peter in John chapter 21 and said, when Peter said, well, what about that guy? What about John? You know, what's he got to do? And Jesus said, you know what? Don't you worry about him. I got plans for him, just like I got plans for you.
But you follow me. You follow me. Our judgment isn't a comparison. So in closing, let me give you some thoughts to ponder. And then hopefully to act upon. Don't ever forget, number one, this life is training and preparation for the life that's to come. You and I are being trained and prepared for what Jesus will have us do in the life to come. We will rule and reign with him. And that would be blasphemous if it wasn't the word of God that tells us otherwise. We will serve him for eternity. We will be given responsibilities that you and I will carry out during the millennium and even into the eternal kingdom. We are being prepared today. How are you doing? How are you holding up under the test? Are you making progress? Every day that we live is either a loss or a gain so far as our future judgment is concerned. You know, in the construction industry, we always talked about backlog. You know, you would bill so much work every month. Salesmen would turn in so many new sales. And then you'd look at the end of all of it and say, you know, we either, uh, you know, put a, 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 we depleted our backlog or we added to our backlog. To help us make decisions, do we need to hire people? Do we have too many people? What do we need to do? And it was always to make decisions, but always at the end of the month or at the end of that period of time, we would look and say, okay, based on this information, we need to make some business adjustments. I hope that we get to the point as God's people where every day that goes by, we look at the day and say, you know what? Have I added in a positive way to my eternal account or have I taken a step backwards? Because that day of judgment could be today. The Lord could return today. He could call us home today. And then that judgment will come according to his timetable. You know, rewards are not based on results or size of ministry. But on the basis of our loyalty to Christ. With the time, the talents, and the treasures that were at our disposal. See, God the perfect judge will judge us based on the ability, the gift, the talent, and the time that we have to serve him. Perfect judge. And he knows whether you and I are giving him the best. I am so concerned in our culture that our God does not always get our best. Our hobbies do, our sports do, our kids' activities do. And when you stop and you sit and you look at it and say, you know what, though? How much of my best goes to God? How much of the talent or ability to the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given me, how have I developed those to serve him? compared to this, 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 and this. And I want to challenge you as I challenge myself. Does not God deserve our best? I spoke to somebody recently who was struggling with making a commitment that was going to take to, to practice for a certain type of ministry. And the same person would spend three or four days a week down at the baseball field 
developing, you know, baseball skills of the players that he coached or his own children. And I went, man, you know, what's a priority to you? And it became apparent. Our priorities are where we spend our time. That's what's most important to us. And you can blow smoke all you want, but God isn't going to buy into any of it. You had a choice, and you spent your time doing X when you could have spent it doing this. And you know what? And you're going to have some tears dropping from your eyes on the day of your judgment because you traded the eternal for the temporal and lost what God had to offer. In other words, we're judged for the opportunities that we were given. Whether they were few or many, whether they were great or small. And so that you people have a better understanding of me and my heart, that's why I have such a sense of urgency to use this cancer coaster in this time in my life to reach as many people as I can with the gospel. Because I know that I'll be judged on how I use the opportunities that God presented. And I'm not held accountable for the results because the results are always in God's hands. But what did you do with the opportunity that I gave you? Were you faithful? And I'll tell you what, I personally long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I'd rather hear those words than hear me sobbing at what I missed out on. And I hope you will too. What will your day of judgment hold for you? What does God look for and how will he reward us? We'll look at that the next time we get together. In the meantime, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are in awe of this judgment day. And I think a lot of us are confused as if somehow or another this doesn't seem fair that Jesus died to take away our sins and why are we going to have to answer for every word that was spoken and every thought and intention of our heart? And yet your word is very clear that there is a day where you will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more suffering or sadness or sorrow. But God, just like you discipline your children today, even on this earth, there's a sense of discipline that'll take place at the judgment seat of Christ. And God, you've given us your word so that we're without excuse. We can change the decisions that we make even today and now. We can put more emphasis on that which is eternal and not that which is temporal. We can evaluate the time that we give you and the effort that's put into ministry versus our own personal hobbies and and, uh, likes and dislikes. God, wake us up so that we see how important that judgment day will be. God, we thank you that we won't be judged for sin, those who have put their faith and trust in you, that we won't appear before the great white throne judgment of Christ and be thrown into the lake of fire. And it's all because of what Jesus did on the cross and today we remember what he did. And as we meditate on what he's done on our behalf, may we never forget that it is his death on the cross and his resurrection that brings about forgiveness of sin to those who believe upon him. And so, Lord, show us where we're sinners. 
Show us where there is a wicked way in us that needs confessed. Show us what we need to make right so that we can live lives of no regrets. And we thank you that we can do these things because of Christ who lives within us. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.